Well, it, it is good to be together this morning, and uh, today we're going to look at two chapters of the Bible. We're going to skip one, which I don't skip one, but we're going to skip one because we're going to come back to it after Easter, all right? Um, chapter 37 starts the life of Joseph, and then the book of Genesis goes all the way to the end in chapter 50 with the life of Joseph, but between 36 and 38, we start out with the life of Joseph, but I thought it would be better to... I'm not trying to rewrite the Bible, guys. I'm leaving it in my Bible this way. But just for teaching it, we're going to skip chapter 37. We're going to do 36 and 38 today. And then we'll come back to 37 and get the rest. So you're still going to get it all, but just not in this sequential order. All right? Nobody looks too mad. I'm good. Okay, we're good. We're going to be all right with that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, here's the thing about today. The Bible is many things right? And as a book, there's a lot of different things in it. And if you've spent much time reading the Bible and studying the Bible, which I know many of you have, you realize there's, it's a really broad book. There's a lot of different things found in Scripture. It's a book that includes history and poetry and music and prophecy. It also focuses in on different disciplines um, like science and religion and sexuality and politics and law and business and more, right? There's a whole lot of things put into the Bible um, and unpacked in the Bible. And part of that is because God wants to speak into every aspect of our lives. So there's a, there's a lot here. And chapter 36 is one of those chapters that even if you have gone through like a, you know, Bible in the year thing or you've gone through a, a reading plan, chapter 36 is one of those chapters you probably skipped, okay? Um, it's, it's a genealogy. It's one of those lists of names that you can't pronounce about a bunch of people that don't even show back up in the Bible. Many of the names that we're going to read today only appear here. We know nothing else about them except their name and who they're related to, okay? Um, but we're not only going to be in chapter 36, we're also going to do chapter 38, which is going to give us some other insight. But chapter 36 was important documentation for the people who lived in the land east of Canaan and whose ancestry went back to Jacob's brother Esau. Okay, we've been going through the book of, of Genesis. We've learned about Abraham. We've learned about his son Isaac. We've learned about his twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And that's who we've been studying all this time, looking at Jacob, looking at Esau. Well, today, in this first chapter, we're going to focus in on Esau, the, the older of the two um, brothers. And, and this chapter would have provided details for the, the people that were part of that line, that wanted to understand their heritage and wanted to figure out how did our family end up in Edom um, here. And, and in the larger story of the Bible and, and Christian faith, I will admit this chapter is really kind of a side branch in the family tree, all right? As we've learned, the promises of God pass down through Jacob and his line, not his brother Esau. And so it, it's just kind of a detour that's put in here, but it, it has obviously um, importance. And, and that branch, that side branch, is going to impact the story for generations. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it. We're going to read chapter 36. I'm going to share a couple things about Esau, and then we're going to move on. All right? So, get ready for a mouthful of names. 
that I will mispronounce, I promise. Are you ready? Chapter 36, verse 1. It says, These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. And if you remember the story, Edom means is red. It's a reference to the red stew that he sold his birthright for. Okay? Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Besamoth bore Ruel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. All right, so let's stop, stop right there. Um, this event, this whole moving of Esau and his family, as I told you, um, Jacob got exiled from the family. He tricked Esau, his brother, one too many times. He ended up stealing not only the birthright, but also the blessing from his old blind father, Isaac. And Esau, at that point, was like, I'm going to kill you. And so their mom intervened and said, we got to get you out of town because your brother's not just kidding about killing you. He's really going to kill you. And so remember, they sent him out to Mesopotamia to go find a wife. So he was exiled from the family. And he lived away from the family for 20 years. Now, last week, we saw the return of, of Jacob. We saw that he came back toward the land. Well, in the meantime, Esau continued to live there and thrive and prosper, but Esau still respected the fact that he was not going to be the recipient of the inheritance. He knew that all that his father had was still going to go to his brother, and he knew that that also included the property and the land, not to mention all the wealth and the possessions and all those things. And so as Esau continued to thrive through these 20 years and, and get livestock, livestock of his own and all these possessions and accumulated a large family, he realized, I can't stay here. Because someday, at some point, my brother's coming back with all of his stuff and he's going to take all the things that my dad has and there's not room for me and for him in the same land. And so Esau took his family, took his livestock, took his possessions, and he moved just a little bit east out of the land of Canaan, across the Jordan River, into what is modern-day Jordan and today, all right? So that's what happened. Esau chose to move to a different land. Now, that's going to be important. We're going to have to remember that, all right? And it would ultimately impact his family and his family line, as we'll see. So in verse 9, it says, And these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. So we're going to repeat this. You've heard some of these names already. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimuth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz. So now we're moving to his grandkids now, the next generation. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz, the father of the Amalekites. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. 
These are the sons of Ruel, all right? So the next son, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the third wife. <laughs> the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife, she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. Do I need to keep going? Yeah, let's keep going here. Um, and then these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs of Timon, Omar, Zepho, and Kenaz. Korah, Gatam, and Amalek, these are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs of Naoth, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama. Here's the third one again. Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. These are their chiefs. Why on earth do they do it this way? <laughs> Part of it is because you have to understand that um, a lot of the um, history of these, these ancient peoples was what's called an oral history. Meaning they would speak it and repeat it over and over to their children until their children memorized all of the history. And so the way that this whole chapter is categorized is it breaks it down in a way where they list them all out and then they talk a little bit about it and then they list them all out again. And they do it forwards and backwards. And so when you see these lists, you have to understand where these break points are. The best way to understand this chapter is realize he had three wives that had children. We think he actually had more wives than that, but he had at least three and he had these sons. All right, and so then you look at the sons and then they described the next generation. And those that raised up into that generation became leaders in the land. And then you take those leaders of the land, and then we're going to see how they integrate with the leaders that already lived there of the land, and then their end of it, okay? I know, it's, it's crazy, but let's keep going, all right? Verse 20 says, these, now, now they're going to leave Esau's family, and we're going to look at the people that were already living in this land, in verse 20, it says, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite. That's why it, this land of Seir got its name there from this guy Seir. The inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Azar, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hamam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. We already saw her name because she married into Esau's family. All right? These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness, in case you were wondering, same guy, as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholibama, which we've heard her name many times because she also married into the family, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Himdon, Eshbon, Ithron, and Cheron. These are the sons of Azar, Bilhon, Zavon, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Haran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Azar, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. Got it? Memorized? Good. Excellent. Then, verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. All right, so now we're going to look at the kings, the original kings of Edom. I already lost my place. Oh, there we are. Okay, before any king reigned over the Israelites, 
Bala, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bala died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, it's my favorite name in the whole list, Jobab, um, of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, the son, the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Maskara reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pau, his wife's name was Mehedabel, the daughter of Metrid, daughter of Mehezab. Okay, we got it. Final generation here. Verse 40 to 43. The final generation listed are the chiefs now of Esau. So we looked at the family. We looked at the people where they married in. We looked at the people who were already living there. And now what we see is the actual tribe of Esau taking leadership and taking over this whole land. Verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau. According to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah. Alva, Jetheth, Aholabama, Elah, Penyon, Kinaz, Teman, Mibzbar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. The chiefs of Esau, 11 men. Now, you did it. You made it through. No more lists of names today. This chapter is mostly useful for archaeologists and historians, all right? And so for them, this is a treasure trove. They really love this stuff. Some of you might have felt that way. Good for you. You have a hope in biblical archaeology. Esau, there's a couple things that I want us to look here. Esau embraced this land and its people and fully integrated with it. Now, last week, when we saw that terrible story that we saw with Shechem and the daughter of Jacob and all that happened in that, the big um, temptation for Jacob when they started moving into the land was Shechem, who was not a, a person of Israel, um, he lived in the land. Shechem and his, his, his father, they wanted to integrate the people of Jacob into their, their uh, community. They told them, hey, we want to marry your daughters and we want to give our daughters to you in marriage. We want to share the land with you. We want you to live here and dwell with us. We want you to become part of us and us part of you. As we saw from the story, what they were really after was, wow, you're really rich. We want you to here live by us because we realize that all of your wealth will be our wealth. And we like that. We want that. All right. And so they invited them to just assimilate and integrate into the community. But Jacob knew very clearly that they were not to be doing that. The, the, the covenant promise that went all the way back to Abraham, remember, was a people and a place. And what he said about the people was, I'm going to make a people, a great nation of you, and you are going to be set apart from all the other people of the land. You're not going to integrate in. I'm going to separate you because I'm going to show you specifically who I am as a, a, as a God. And I'm going to have a special relationship with you and you and your family alone. All right? And so Jacob, it was a temptation for them to say, well, this is great. Like, they want to help us and they want us to integrate and, and be part of the community and be just like everyone else. This is really good. 
It's safe, but that's not what God's calling us to. So Jacob refused, and they went on and do it, did their own thing. Here, though, what we see is the very same temptation comes to Esau. Esau realizes, well, I can't stay over there in Canaan if I'm going to get rich. I need to get out where I can get my own space and do my own thing. He comes over there, and the people of Edom are like, well, let's intermarry. Let's draw you into our world. And Esau agrees. And so his entire family becomes integrated with these people there. Esau is an example of someone who traded the important for the immediate. He traded the important for the immediate. Now, this is something that people often do. You've probably done it. I've done it many times. We take something that's really important, but it may be a long-term important thing. It may be something that's going to take a lot of work, a lot of effort. It may be something that's not very easy, but we still know it's important. But instead of doing the hard work and investing the time and the energy and working through it, we see a shortcut pop up or another route that's a little bit easier and it, it pays off a little quicker. And we say, you know what? Let's ignore the important and let's go for the immediate. Let me have this right now. It's the whole delayed gratification thing, right? And so we just say, well, I know this is important. I know this is good. I know that ultimately this is going to work out best. But if I can still get good or at least okay right now, let's do that. Because then I don't have to wait for it. We see that in Esau's life. And actually we see it not just here um, in waiting for God to make space for him and God to just raise up his family. Instead, he's like, well, this is going to be quicker. It's going to be easier. Let's just do this. We also saw it first with the birthright. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? It's the best known story of the two of them. When he was willing to sell off his future, he sold his birthright to his little brother, who was only a few seconds younger than him, but still his little brother. I'm sure he rubbed that in a lot. You're the, you're the younger. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, a pot of stew, right? His birthright was important. It would, and it, would, it would depend on what his inheritance was going to be like when his parents passed away. And it was a big difference in this culture. And, but instead of that, he's like, I'm really hungry right now. I'm not going to worry about the future. I just want the soup and give it to me now. So he did that. We also saw it when he impulsively married not one, but two Canaanite women who then made life miserable for his parents. They weren't supposed to be marrying the Canaanites. They were supposed to find people from the extended family way back when. And here we see him trying to make space for himself. And in our culture as people, we, we see people do this all the time. We often value results above the methods. We don't care how you got it as long as you got it. Right? You see it in business all the time. You see business people that will make shortcuts and do sketchy things in business, but if it's successful, if it makes good profit, people will just kind of look the other way. They're like, ah, well, you know, you did what you had to do. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. This business thing is tough. It's not about people. It's, it's just business, right? People make excuses for this very thing. And, and unfortunately, that's not God's way. Taking the shortcut, taking the easy path is rarely God's way. And some of these people, this mentality is, well, I can do what I need to do and God will understand. 
at the end, so I made a few shady deals here in my time. So I ran over a couple of people. I stepped on a couple shoulders to get to where I ended up. I had to do what I had to do. God's going to understand it. And you know what? This is how I make it in my life. And yeah, if it doesn't really work out, when I get to the pearly gates, if they're closed to me, I'll just, I'll jump the fence, you know? That's the person I am. It doesn't work that way, guys. It's not going to work that way. That's not God's way. Finding success in the world does not always equal finding success with God. That's hard for us to delineate because in our minds, we get so success-oriented and success-focused that we think, if I'm successful, God's on my side. And if I'm not successful, then God's mad at me. And we equate those two things and say, anything I do that blows up and is good and incredible, then God's in it. And anything that fails, God's obviously not in it. But that is not the way it works. From what we can tell by reading Esau's history in that, that, that chapter there, was that he was a huge success in the world. His descendants populated and ruled a large region that would ultimately be named for him. They're first generation immigrants coming into this land and within only a couple generations, they've taken over the whole place and they've renamed the whole place after Esau. They were wildly successful. But Edom was not Canaan and Canaan was the promised land. Canaan was the place that they were supposed to be. It wasn't the place for the descendants of Abraham. And ultimately, if you go farther into the the history of the Bible, we'll see that the people of Edom, the Edomites, would become enemies of Israel in time. The the entire book of Obadiah in the Old Testament, a prophet, the whole book is an attack on the Edomites. The entire book. King Herod, who tried to kill baby Jesus, if you remember that part of the story, was an Edomite. The Edomites are constantly going to be having issues with the people of God, with Israel. And it all goes back to Esau looking for this opportunity. Now, even though Esau reconciled, as we saw, with his brother, Jacob, and maybe he even got his heart right with God, we don't know, but he set up his descendants to walk away from God by being in this land. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man... If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So don't let the treasures of this world lead you away from the treasure of walking with God for eternity. The road that leads to destruction is wide. Many follow it. We've got to choose wisely. Okay, now we're going to return back to the main branch in the family tree. Jacob's family here in chapter 38. Okay, we're skipping chapter 37. We're going to chapter 38. Now, we get a glimpse here of Jacob's sons. This is why we're looking at it um, before we focus on the life of, of Joseph. But the glimpse is not a pretty picture. Okay, this is not a pretty picture. I told you last week there were two parts of Genesis that I was not looking forward to teaching. Last week was one of them. This is the second one of them. Um, and I don't see any young kids in here. I, I see some babies, but they're going to be okay. I was just, I'm just going to say this is a parental warning. We've got some graphic content in the chapter ahead, okay? This is not, this is not a fun one. 
Um, but we're going we're gonna to go through it because that's what we do. So here we are, chapter 38. We're back now to the sons of Jacob. All right, so not Esau's kids. Now we're going back to Jacob. This is going to be the end of what we hear about um, this family. And, and here's, here's where it starts in chapter 38, verse 1. It says, It happened at that time that Judah, that's Jacob's son Judah, was the fourth of his 12 sons, okay? That Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. Now, um, this is not like what we saw last week where we had to study that whole thing about rape of Shechem uh, raping Dinah. That's not what was going on here. Um, it doesn't say it explicitly here in the text, but we'll see here in a little bit. He took her as a wife, okay? So he married this woman, but she's a Canaanite. He marries this, this Canaanite. And it says in verse three, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, that's the middle brother, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. Till Shelah, my son, my third son now, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Okay. Now, in this ancient culture, women could not own property. They had very few rights and were even bought and sold as wives. All right, this was a horrible time to be alive as a woman. Now, inheritance was passed on to the sons only. So if you were a daughter, you had no chance of receiving an inheritance when your parents passed away. All right? So you had to rely on whoever it was that you married for your inheritance and for your sustenance in life. Okay? And when Judah died, all of his wealth, all of his livestock, all of his possessions would be passed down to his sons with the majority going to the oldest son. In this case, though, his oldest son, Ur, was dead. So, Onan, the second son, would get the firstborn inheritance. Unless his older brother had had sons. Because then the, the, the kids of the oldest son would actually get that inheritance. To make things more complicated, if you're not confused already enough today with all these names I've thrown at you and everything else, to make things more complicated, in this culture... If you were a married, if you had married, uh, if you were a man who had a married brother and that brother died, it was your duty, this is what was being referred to here, it was your duty to impregnate his wife and raise the child on your deceased brother's behalf. Because the way it worked here was when Judah had these sons, 
these three lines were supposed to be established for perpetuity. This is the line of the sons of Judah. And each one of these sons were supposed to have their own lineage and own heritage. That's how they, they did things. So Ur dying, what Judah now says to Onan is, well, you've got, we've got a blank spot here in the family. You've got to raise up a son for your brother Ur. Okay? That's what's going on here. Onan, the middle son, did not want to either A, give up a portion of his inheritance, because now he'd no longer get the, the firstborn inheritance, or B, he didn't want to raise a son for someone else. He's like, if I'm going to raise a son, it's going to be for me. I'm not doing all this stuff for Ur. I, I don't want that. So he took steps to try and avoid his responsibility, and he died for it. Shelah, now the youngest son, would now have the same responsibility, but Judah didn't want to risk it. Judah is thinking, well, two out of my three sons have already died from being with this woman. Maybe she's bad luck. <laughs> she's the first black widow, right? And he's like, ah, this isn't okay. So he comes up with this lame excuse, basically saying, you know what, let's just wait a little bit longer. He's a little young for death. So let's let him age up a bit, and then we'll talk about it. In the meantime, what he was trying to do is kind of quietly put her off to the side and said, go back, live with your family, do your thing, stay a widow, and when he's old enough, then I'll call you back and bring you back to the family, okay? That's what's going on. And don't worry, it gets worse, guys. Okay, here we go. Verse 12, aren't you glad you came to church today? Don't worry, Easter is next week. It'll be, it'll be awesome. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, the same guy from before, Hera the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah, the third son, was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge... Until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. All right. So after Judah's wife has died, he goes out of town on a work trip with a friend with some questionable morals. All right, that's what's going on here. And he comes to a woman that he assumes is a prostitute and he strikes a deal with her. Now, what is all this talk of the signet and the cord and the staff? It's important that you know because they're, they're critical in this encounter. You might be familiar with the idea of a signet ring. Maybe you've heard of that. I've got a couple pictures here for you. This is a, a, an ancient signet ring. This one actually comes from um, ancient Europe. And if you see what it is, is it's a ring, but it's carved in the top of that ring. Um, 
basically a family crest and a family seal. And so when a, a wealthy merchant or something, a person of the royal family, would sign documents, official documents, they would take their ring, their signet ring, and on a, a seal of wax, warm wax or clay, they would stamp their insignia, the signet ring, into that stamp. And when they removed it, it would have the seal of that particular family. Here's another one from Egypt. Ancient Egypt did the same thing. Obviously, you can tell it's hieroglyphics, so it's a little bit different. But what he, what's being talked about here is actually a slight variation of that. Go to the next picture. This is actually a picture. This is a limestone cylinder to the left. I know we don't have the greatest picture here, but you can see it. It's a small little thing. Some of them are less than an inch tall. And, and around this little cylinder, they would carve. They'd have these artists that would carve um, the same thing. They would carve an insignia on it. And then, this is a clay tablet from this, they would roll that tiny little piece of stone across the clay or wax, leaving an imprint that would represent that particular family. Okay? That's what's, going, that's what's going on here. It was a form of ID for someone important. All right. Now, many of these, like this one that we had just seen, was, they're actually hollowed out in the center. And they would attach a cord, usually a decorative cord, to it um, so that the owner would wear it around their neck or as a bracelet. Okay? And, and then, so we've got the, the, the signet, the cord, and then the staff. Understand that the staff was more than just a walking stick, all right? Um, there were, these staffs were often elaborately carved and customized for the owner so that they'd be easily distinguished by those who knew them. Essentially, Tamar took his driver's license, his social security card, and his phone password, okay? And she took all those and said, these are coming with me, and until you send payment ahead, I'm holding these as collateral, all right, here we go. Verse 20 says, When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we will be, shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat and you did not find her. Judah was obviously not proud of what he had done. And to avoid embarrassment, he figured, I'm just going to head back to the DMV and get a new license. <laughs> I'll deal with this later. Um, I don't want people to know how I lost what I lost. All right? And so it goes on there in verse 24. And it says, About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. 
And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Now, when we read a story like this from Scripture, it's easy to make a mistake and think that God approved all the things that these people are doing. Even his people. This is the line of Judah. And sometimes people will misread Scripture and pull things out of Scripture and see like, see, I mean, prostitution's totally fine. He's not married anymore, and this is Judah. He went to prostitutes. So it should be okay, right? No. We can study this passage and think even that God has different rules for men and women when it comes to sexual ethics. Oh, see, Judah, he gets away with it. No big deal. He just has to go back to the DMV. But Tamar, she's supposed to be burned. No, that's not the way it is either. That's not right. In fact, Judah doesn't seem to think there's a problem with him going to a prostitute after his wife is gone, but is willing to have Tamar put to death for having sex with someone after her husband is dead. To be clear, to be very clear, neither of those actions line up with God's guidelines for sexuality. Okay, that's not the biblical message of sexuality. Now, I could skip over this and assume that you all know what those guidelines are. And I thought about it. (laughs) But I think it would be irresponsible for me as a pastor, especially since I came across an article this week that um, was a um, survey done by the Pew Research Center. It's a little bit old now. This was done in October of 2019. But in this survey, they they, uh, surveyed American Christians And here's the results of this survey. 67% 67 of American Christians reported that sexual, casual sexual relationships are acceptable. American Christians, they said at some point, depending on what the agreement is and how this is all going, 67% said that's probably okay. My calling as a pastor and teacher is to show you to the best of my ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what God desires for your life. That invades every part of your life. Even the most intimate details of your life. We believe, as Christians, that the Bible was written by human authors that were inspired by God. And that in it, we find the very words of God. All right? Now, Many times, we don't like what those words tell us. Many times. And each one of us has a choice to whether or not we will obey what God tells us in his word. It's up to us to decide if we're going to do it or not. But I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says here. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what it says. Regarding sexuality, the Bible teaches us that sex is reserved for a marriage relationship. And any, anything outside of that is called immorality for people that aren't married. It's called sexual immorality. And for the people that are married, if they're having sex outside of their marriage, it's called adultery. All right, And you'll see those two terms repeated over and over and over in Scripture. Sexual immorality and adultery. And they come up all over the place. But anything outside of that area of marriage, being adultery or immorality, the Bible says is wrong. So what I'm telling you is, 
67% of American Christians are wrong. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 describes it. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And here's what it says, and this is important. Do not be deceived. Why? Because it's easy to be deceived, and lots of people are deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's the people that aren't married, that are having sex outside of marriage, um, uh, sorry, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's the people in marriage relationships, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this list is not just for sexual sin. It's all kinds of things included in there. And so, a lot of times we want to elevate sexual sin above every other sin. That's not the case, but I just want you to know this is what it says. Now, remember, I am not your judge, your capital J judge. I'm not. The Bible tells us that one day every man and woman who's ever lived will stand before God to answer for every action and every word spoken in their lives. It also says that as a pastor, I'm actually held to a stricter judgment than those of you who aren't simply because I have the responsibility and the duty to tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear it. So I understand that when I look at this this survey and it says 67% of American Christians think that this is wrong, I know statistically there's probably several of you in here that are like, you're wrong. Okay. But my job is to tell you what it says. What you do with it is what you do with it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 tells you what the will of God is. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That means you don't do it. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Listen, guys, Judah was in sin for doing what he did. Tamar was in sin for doing what she did. But sin has no power over God. He can still do great things. And you know that I'm always looking for the silver lining when we're looking at some of these passages of Scripture, the bright side of it. And we do see a bright side of it. The last few verses of here, uh, starting in verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. All right, so theoretically, this one's the firstborn. But as he drew back in his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. All right. And afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. There was a long line of twins in this family. Just like Jacob, who got out in front of Esau after birth, Perez got in front of his brother Zerah. The interesting thing is that the entire line of Judah was rewritten right here. You might recognize that name of Judah, okay? Um, We talk about Jesus as the the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, The area of Judah becomes Judea, where Jerusalem is. I mean, Judah is a big name in the Bible, all right? And that name, you may not realize, even though you recognize it, that that name goes all the way back to a guy who visited a prostitute. Perez, this little boy here, would be the ancestor of King David. And then 
ultimately, he'd be the ancestor of Jesus himself. This line goes all the way back to here. Tamar is the first of five women in the genealogy of Christ. And I think that this is a reminder for us today that God uses broken, sinful people. And he can redeem all things. When we talk about the brokenness of sexuality in our culture, we talk about the decisions that we have made, that others have made, and all of the damage that comes along with that. We have to also be reminded that God's a God who fixes things and a God who heals and a God who will restore. Yes, God has a perfect plan for your life and a perfect plan for my life. Chances are none of us have walked it perfectly. But God will restore and fix and heal if we allow him to. And and he will redeem all things. Esau seemed to have great success in the world but ultimately his family line would be erased from history. Jacob here has a family with a series of humiliating events that were recorded for all of history, but his family line produces the savior of the world. So what does that mean for us today as we finish? Should we just do whatever we're gonna do and assume, well, God's gonna fix it all in the end anyway? No, no. But know that he can and will triumph over all things. Our God is a God of grace and forgiveness. And his desire is that we would walk with him with nothing getting in the way of our relationship with him. Sin breaks relationship. Sexual sin is one of the most common sins that holds us back from experiencing the life that God has for us. And if that describes you here today, you don't have to come tell me about it. Confess your sins to God. Allow him to cleanse you. As the Bible tells us, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know that was heavy. I know that was hard. I know that was the most different sermon I've probably ever given you. (laughs) But that's where we're at. Let's pray here today. Father God, I do thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we thank you for all of it. Even these parts of your word that uh, are, are difficult. And um, even these parts of your word that, um, wow, we sometimes don't even know what to do with and understand. But God, I do believe that you want to speak to every one of us. And here today, Lord, I just pray that in this, we would be encouraged. We'd be encouraged to choose you in all parts of our life. No matter what the world around us says or does, no matter what our natural inclinations are, you're calling us to live in a different way, in a new way. And I also realize that that way is often countercultural and, and goes against what the world around us says is okay. But God, you want to transform our lives. And that means every part of our life. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would bring grace, you'd bring forgiveness, you'd bring healing, and you'd bring true transformation. You call us to come to you for transformation. We can do all the self-help books. We can follow the right podcasts. We can read the books. We can study the people. We can take the classes and try to learn all that we can, but... The deepest transformation comes when we come into your presence and we allow you to change our lives. 
And so today, Lord, we, we want to give ourselves 100% to you, every part of who we are, and ask you to speak to us and ask you to guide us. Lord, we want to follow you and be your people. So we just pray that you would show us how to do that. Give us the courage to do those things. Give us the obedience to follow you. And may we be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.